in the beginning of practice it's normal to have some doubt, uncertainty, because we're new to it. We don't have the experience. So often the more we hear, the more we read. And still, instead of solving our doubts, can give rise to new, fresh doubts. We study the Buddhist teachings, we listen to talks. So generally we get an idea of the direction we're heading in the practice. We start with the intention to free our minds from stress, suffering, to find peace, find happiness. And we study, we learn, think about the Four Noble Truths. <coughs> we want to experience the cessation of suffering, so we start practicing cultivating the Eightfold Path. Then sometimes we doubt, oh, should I be developing sila or samadhi or wisdom? Which comes first or what do I do? That's normal in the beginning. Ajahn Chah said even though we put it all down on paper. We say sila, then samadhi, then panya. Really we have to begin with panya, with wisdom. We have to see the value of practice. Have some idea why we're practicing. We have to start looking at our life, our mind, our body, looking inwards and investigating using thought, using wise reflection to learn and to remind ourselves of the teachings we've heard already to remind ourselves what we should be doing what we should be practicing and then to investigate, to look what's going on so to keep Sila, we need wisdom. To develop samadhi, we need wisdom. And from the development of sila, samadhi, this helps to deepen our wisdom. And wisdom is also the result of the practice. You develop the path, the Eightfold Path. The result is arising of wisdom, clear knowledge and vision of the way things are. It frees the mind from ignorance and delusion, the causes of suffering. So we begin with wisdom, we end with wisdom. So it pretty much surrounds and envelops the whole practice. But the kind of wisdom we're developing is not all just trying to think and analyze our way to Nibbana. That plays a part. 
There's also the wisdom that comes from clearly seeing, knowing the way things are. The kind of knowledge and vision that helps to uproot the delusion that causes attachments, becoming that process the Buddha described the way suffering arises, craving, attachment, becoming. The kind of wisdom that uproots that is often not coming from a lot of thinking and analysis, it's coming from clear seeing, clear knowing. Coming through the development of the four foundations of mindfulness, clearly knowing body as impermanent suffering, not self. Knowing the nature of body, nature of form is that way. Feeling the mind, mind objects. Clearly seeing them as anicca dukkha anatta. <coughs> when there's clear seeing, then the mind naturally lets go of grasping and self-identification with the five candors and with body, feeling, mind, mind objects. But to get to that point where the mind is clearly seen, having dropped the more ordinary discursive thinking, analytical habit of mind that we have, we have to train. So as we train well, we, we still have to think about the practice. But there's a time and place, there's the time when we think, we review what we know, what we've heard, compare it with our experience. There's a time when we put aside the thoughts and the analysis and we just develop pure mindfulness, what you might call samatha practice, samadhi practice. Sometimes to do that we have to lay the groundwork with some wise reflection. But ultimately there are those times when we have to just set aside thought and develop just pure awareness from moment to moment using a meditation object. So that we can then come to look and to see our experience as it is without even colouring it, just by thinking and creating more mental fabrication around experience. We're just clearly seeing it and knowing it. There has to be that time in the practice as well. So in practice, even though it's the one mind we're working with, the development of samatha and the development of vipassana or wisdom, there are different functions and there has to be a time for calming the mind, bringing it to rest, and a time for wise reflection. So you have to train in both, cultivate, cultivate these two qualities. They come out of the one mind. So just as Ajahn Chah said, the mango grows from a 
a flower on the the end of the twig. You get the flower, and then the small fruit emerges from that, and then the small fruit, the hard fruit, starts to grow, gains colour and flesh, softness, so it looks more like a fruit, smells like a fruit until it gradually matures and ripens. It's all coming out of the same one thing, but there's different stages and different qualities along the way. And training the mind is like that. It all comes out of the one mind, but there's different functions, there's different aspects that we're cultivating. In the beginning of our practice, we spend a lot of time looking at intention, developing wholesome, skillful intentions, kusala dhamma. But intention is just the one mental moment, the intention to put attention on the breath, or the intention to be mindful of puto, the intention to keep the precepts, the eight precepts, or the bhikkhu vinaya, the intention to be kind or compassionate in a certain situation or just in, a, in our minds. We have intentions coming up all the time, or we might have negative intentions as well. But we're developing the skillful ones, and that takes skills, takes effort, takes skills, Different qualities need to be developed to fulfill and perfect these intentions that we start with. You know, to do, we start with the intention to keep the bhikkhu vinaya, but obviously it requires a lot of effort. We have to learn the rules, we recite them, we remember them, we think about how to practice with them, ask questions, learn from our experience. All of that is putting forth effort into upholding and developing that intention to keep the Vinaya. Something we have to review and use different skills over time. It's not like some one-off thing we say, oh, I'll keep the Vinaya. We have that intention and then do nothing else. That won't be enough. So it's a whole, whole area of training that we work with. Or the development of meditation, you have the intention to be mindful of your object. That's just the one intention, and then you have to keep re-establishing it, cultivating it with persistent effort. You have to develop wisdom and understanding of what the obstacles are, how to remedy them. So we work, work a lot with intention, and this is right effort, another part of the path, training the mind to bring up the skillful mental states, skillful intentions, to abandon the unskillful negative intentions and mental states that we have. That requires attention, vigilance, so a lot of our early mindfulness practice is just about becoming aware of our intentions, our mental states, how they affect our 
speech, our actions. And part of sila training, it's not just simply keeping precepts, it's also you're deepening uh, our practice. We're developing the su supportive qualities for developing meditation. So as a bhikkhu, you know, part of our sila is Tudonga water. Sometimes we stay in our grots, live very simply at the foot of a tree. Sometimes we undertake not to lie down for a night, so put more effort into our sitting, our walking meditation. We eat in the bowl, maybe just eat one meal a day, not to take any food or milk drinks at other times. There's different Tudonga waters we use, which are part of sila, but they're to bring up more refinement of intention and effort in training the mind to focus on the meditation object, set aside distractions and more unwholesome states of mind. And that requires effort, requires discipline, requires renunciation. There's other aspects of sila as well, which learning to spend our time wisely in the monastery. This is sila. You're bringing yourself to sit meditation and walk meditation. Especially in the summer where we have a lot of free time. And that's part of sila. It's not just simply not killing, not stealing. It's also the refinement is you disciplining yourself to meditate regularly and put effort into meditation, sitting, walking meditation. When you're tired walking you practice standing meditation perhaps. We practice lying down meditation before we sleep, when we wake up. And this is also a part of sila and bringing up skillful intentions to practice at different times in different postures. Not yet talking about the refinement of wisdom where the mindfulness is more sustained and we're reflecting on the three characteristics. We're just bringing up skillful mind states that support the practice of developing meditation, developing mindfulness. So the practice of renunciation, the practice of effort, persistent effort. Obviously other aspects of the sila, we learn how to develop wholesome mental states through our actions and development of learning how to be unselfish in our behavior to help let go of the more coarser negative states, more selfish, indulgent states, greediness, laziness, stubbornness. We also develop kindness and compassion in daily life to help let go of our habit of going towards thoughts, intentions of ill will, cruelty, or hatred that we might have gathered in our karmic past. Now we do different things that consciously bring up the opposite. So we do acts of kindness, acts of service, acts of generosity, acts of compassion. And partly in the beginning we're doing that as conscious 
practice bringing up intentions to put through a, an action of compassion, action of kindness. It has a very supportive practice, uh, effect on the mind, bringing up wholesome intentions, wholesome mental states in very obvious, direct ways. When we practice with more experience, then maybe it's more of a mental thing when it's constantly developing kindness, compassion to others, letting go of one's more selfish, negative tendencies. In the beginning, often we're doing it physically as well. We do physical actions and speak in ways that reflect our attempts to bring up wholesome intention. Then there's more refined kinds of scene like Indriya Sangwara, just basic sense restraint, not letting the mind fall into delighting in or aversion to all the sense objects, mental impressions we're receiving through our day. It's classified as sila practice, but obviously it runs straight into developing the practice of mindfulness and developing samadhi. If you don't have sense restraint and you're not practicing that, well, you'll never get very deep states of samadhi. We have to learn to be more mindful and restrained around the use of our senses as we see, hear, taste, touch, smell. This is why the monastic form and lifestyle is so simple. You live in the forest. It's not a lot of material possessions, entertainments and distractions. We often, this is, we, we say, a practice of seclusion, even though we live as a community, we're secluded from the rest of the world. We don't have TVs and internet. We don't spend a lot of time socializing, even though we meet lay people from time to time. It's not a big part of our life. Even as monks, we socialize, we interact with each other a little bit for goodwill and to get things done in the monastery. But then we also have a lot of time on our own. So hand in hand with sense restraint, we have restraint in speech. And you find if you don't socialize too much, then there's less that you get caught into in terms of arguments and differences of opinion falling into unskillful speech, just mindless chatter or more unwholesome negative tendencies that might come up based on greed or anger. And if you're mindful of your speech and how much you speak, then this supports the practice as well. So this is part of our sila practice. It may not be precisely defined in the, in the suttas, in the texts, but it's definitely something you practice every day, re reflecting how much you speak, what subjects you speak on, what kind of speech is conducive to the path, a speech that encourages you know, fewness of wishes, speech that is kind, supportive of meditation, speech that is kind and supportive of developing compassion, understanding of each other and of the suffering in the world. These are parts of our sila practice as well, developing sense restraint, limiting what we use and how much we use. 
limiting what we speak about and how much we speak and so on. These are areas of practice that come up every day. And one's constantly developing skillful intentions, wholesome intentions, letting go of the unwholesome. And this is directly supportive of the practice of sitting and walking meditation so that the mind settles down easily. One doesn't have to use so much effort to concentrate the mind on butto or the breath. One doesn't have to wade through so much mental proliferation as one meditates because one's already been guarding over one's mind through mindfulness in daily life, keeping the precepts, practicing sensuous restraint, and be mindful of speech. This all supports the sitting and walking meditation. It allows the mind to settle down quickly when we do come to meditate. Chanting is another practice. You, you learn chants and you practice chanting. A very wholesome practice and it doesn't lead to a lot of mental proliferation. It tends to arouse faith, arouse wisdom as you reflect on the meaning of the things you're chanting. There's many areas of practice we can see in our monastic life that support the arising of skillful intentions and wholesome states of mind. As we develop these, then we can see the effect when we come to sit, walk meditation. Our aim is to be able to settle the mind quickly, whether we're contemplating, which we will do sometimes, or just directing the attention to the meditation object, to the breath, Buddha. The aim is to be able to calm the mind and let go of the hindrances more and more. So our aim is not to be feeding the hindrances throughout our day, but actually to be already be managing them, undermining them, reducing them, before we've even come to sit meditation or walk meditation. And in a more refined way when we come to meditate, really working with the mind to let go of every bit of mental proliferation that comes up, not to indulge it, not to keep wandering around in circles, doubting, wondering, thinking aimlessly about this, about that, but actually to develop some real energy by focusing on the meditation object and to develop that patience and resilience to be able to sit with a bit of pain, discomfort or restlessness to keep walking when we'd rather just stop and go to sleep or something. To learn to be patient and endure through the different mind states that come up, but constantly bringing up fresh mindfulness, applying ourselves to the meditation object. And this is the way we can actually experience some deeper states of peace and concentration. If we've been developing the sealer and putting effort into that then the development of samadhi becomes easier. It's a natural consequence as consequence of the keeping of sila. Good sila leads to easier development of samadhi and more smoother, more deeper states of concentration. The sila purifies the samadhi. And as we develop more 
consistent mindfulness, a more refined level of mindfulness through sitting and walking meditation, then this is what supports the ability to contemplate with a mind state that's removed from normal proliferation and worries and sleepiness and mental agitation, which is what we're aiming for, to at least have periods through the day, even if it's only short periods, 5, 10, 15 minutes, where you can just contemplate mindfully and see the Anicca Dukkha Anatta in your candors for a short period of time without a lot of mental proliferation interrupting. The mental proliferation is quiet and then any thought that arises is seen as Anicca Dukkha Anatta rather than caught up, the mind getting caught up in that thought and indulging and getting lost in a, another daydream, another mental state, but rather being in a position to contemplate whatever is coming into the field of experience. That's what we're aiming for, whether it's just in one session of meditation or just th over time through the day. And to bring that the level of mindfulness to be able to contemplate the see and nature, see the impermanence of body, feelings, mind, mind objects, this world that we're involved with internally and externally, and the relationship between the mind and the world through the senses. It's these times where the mind quietens and we can contemplate, that's where insight arises. You can really start to undermine some of your previously held assumptions or the different biases that we have in the mind, the different craving attachment becoming that pattern that keeps coming up in the mind. We start to undermine it. As the hindrances subside, well, craving subsides, but then you have to look more deeply to see attachment, the attachment that you've already gained and that forms around experience. And you don't have to look far, you're just very ordinary things. See how we attach and cling and identify with just very ordinary things. Say you sew a robe, you've learnt to sew, you might have used effort and mindfulness and wisdom to do that. And then once you've got a, a robe, then you might identify with this, ah, oh, this is my robe. Maybe a sense of pride comes up. And on one level, you say that's a wholesome thing. You've learned to be independent, to be able to sew and maintain your own robes, which is a good skill to have as a monk. But maybe more on a more deep or deeper, sub subtle level, there's a sense of attachment there, my robe. Maybe with a new robe, you get upset when it's, you get stained or torn it's one you've sewn yourself, looked after, ma maintained. Then you start to see that subtle attachment, even a robe can become a source for becoming. We become our robe. becomes another part of our self-identity. Sometimes monks get very caught up in the colour of their robes. They like it very dark. Maybe they see pictures of Lumpur Man or some of his disciples and have a very dark robe, it makes me look more, better meditator, more the real thing. Some people like very light coloured, new, newly dyed robes and feel very fresh and new, uh, new newly dyed robes. 
these are very subtle sense of identification just with something very simple like a robe but it's something you can pick up when the mind is calm you see how identity forms around very simple things like a robe or a bowl or you do a job of work in the monastery you, know, you keep somewhere clean or you build something these subtle sense of identity will come up with that so if somebody criticizes or has a different opinion you know, about the color of your robe or some job you've done you'll get a reaction if there's that sense of self-identification then there'll be a reaction oh, who are they to say that or what do they know or I know better and so on it's often very ordinary things is where we have to use mindfulness and then investigate the Dhamma when the mind is calm see how subtle forms, sense of identification forms around our experience around our requisites around the monastery around our relationships with other bhikkhus around our view of ourself yeah. we might have a view that we're a certain way we probably have many self views it can almost change moment by moment one, one moment we think we're very good meditator because we've had a very peaceful, mindful period of meditation. Then another moment is all gone and it's drained away, and then we think we're a lousy meditator. The self-identification can change very quickly. There's many selves that we have lurking inside our our mind, our heart. So only when we start to maintain some continuity of mindfulness and contemplate and we can bring them out, reveal them to the mind to start seeing the delusion of them and the suffering they cause. With self-identification we'll get greed and lust and we'll get anger. We get praise and blame, gain and loss and so on. All the different experiences of the world come out of it always the practice is bringing us back to a sense of equanimity even on the level of sila we're developing sense restraint we're developing equanimity based on mindfulness at the sense doors so you have some pleasant experiences <coughs> some unpleasant experiences but you maintain that evenness of mind as you're mindful of the the pleasure the pain the pleasant the unpleasant coming in through the senses or even just on the level of memories then obviously on the level of samadhi you're developing equanimity towards physical sensations, towards the mental activity of the mind, the craving and the, all the turbulence that brings up. You're calming the mind, focusing on one object and bringing it to one-pointedness with equanimity. You use that as the platform to develop the real equanimity from contemplation seeing these candors as an ichidukkha anatta and this is a model for reflection that you can develop from day one in the monastery as an anagaric or even as a lay visitor you start reflecting on experience in this way and then it will hold true and be useful as a useful ubaya, a useful tool right through to Nibbāna the experiences change and the subtleties of the mind change but the model for reflection doesn't change that much 
we're looking at suffering, its cause, bringing the mind to the cessation of suffering to realize that, and you're cultivating the path. You know, even somebody develops deep states of jhana and they're still going to have the subtle sense of self-identification coming up with the pleasure or the equanimity of that state still is a cause for becoming, for rebirth. Or we're just somebody just beginning, just working with, just learning to keep the precepts, get up in the morning, follow the routine. You know, the, the experiences may be more coarse or more subtle, but the reflections are much the same. It's more about having developing the mindfulness to use the wisdom that the Buddha gave us and our teachers have handed down to us and actually cultivate it for ourselves so it becomes our own wisdom, our own insight, and actually our own mind is liberated by it. If you keep practicing like this, there's no doubt that your mind will gradually let go of defilement. You know, the coarse ones first, the subtle ones later, but the process is going to be determined by learning to bring up mindfulness, calm the mind and then reflect on the Dhamma using the three characteristics as a tool for investigating experience. You know, what is impermanent is suffering, cannot be taken as a self. The very subtle, blissful feelings, feelings of deep happiness or even deep equanimity, whether it's just passing mental states, physical sensations and feelings around the body, mental, subtle mental pleasure and pain. The physical world, the mental world is displaying these three characteristics for us to investigate all the time. By investigating the mind develops that deeper equanimity where it knows based on knowing the way things are. It's just like that. Even as you do different acts of kindness or service in your bhikkhu life, and you, you might be involved with the world, teaching people or building monasteries or helping family or different things. That might be going on on the outside, but on the inside you're also reflecting on the impermanence of it all so that the mind doesn't fall into suffering as it does these things. You know, this is the heart of the Buddha's teaching, is to maintain that insight into the Four Noble Truths, into the three characteristics, and use them as a, a vehicle or a model for training the mind to see through the normal kind of way of viewing the world as me, mine, myself, identifying with everything, my body, my eyes seeing this, hearing that, tasting that, and so on, and all the reactions of pleasure and pain and the attachments that come from it. And now we're seeing through that to see through to the deeper layers of the deeper truths underneath. It doesn't mean to say you don't function on the outside, you carry on functioning in the world. Maybe you can do more for the world. As, as you free up your own sense of self-identity, then you maybe have more time and energy to give back to others. So this is what we're looking at. We're looking, investigating the teachings the Buddha gave us, Lumpur Chah gave us.
using the backdrop of the monastery, the forest, especially in the warmer, drier weather. We can spend more time in the forest, walking meditation, sitting meditation, maybe very simply, very in a very ordinary, simple kind of way, so we can develop some more refined levels of mindfulness inside. Don't have to get so caught up in the world. We can have more time just to observe the, our own mind and just keep at it. It's persistent effort that will bring an end to dukkha. If we keep coming back to the sitting and the walking and developing that continuity of mindfulness, then more and more the mind will be able to contemplate and see what the Buddha was pointing to. So I encourage you all to keep up with your practice. I'll just say this much for tonight.